Welcome to the Knife at the Gunfight. This is Doc Fitz, and we got a great program today with Terrence William of the Sports and Culture Podcast, taking a look at the political economy of sports of 2016 and 2017. But before we get started, I wanted to congratulate two Baltimore men having a good week this week. The first is Gervonta Davis, who just won the IBF Junior Lightweight title in Brooklyn, New York, as well as the political rapper Son of None, whose video to the track It's Like That is going to drop this week and has been seen very positively, including by Talib Kweli, among others. So I look forward to that. But we have a great show, so stay tuned. This is Doc Fitz. Welcome back to The Knife at the Gunfight. I have with me a good friend of The Knife, Terrence Williams. Terrence, are you with us? I'm good, man. How's, how's everything? Great. I'm very grateful that you're joining us here on The Knife. I called you because I know you have experience not only in football at many levels, but also within the media and the production of the entertainment side of it. So I wanted to talk with you about the political economy of sports, looking back at 2016 and looking ahead at 2017 as we start the new year. Yeah, it was. this was certainly a year. I mean, good Lord. I mean, of, of all the years, you know, I was watching at a, uh, some, some of those CNN documentaries that they've been doing about the end of Obama's preg- uh, pregnancy, pre- presidency, and kind of looking back on it, just thinking about this past year, it was just like, man, what a time. It's almost as turbulent as the 60s when it comes to a lot of things socially. And, and thank goodness that sports these days have enough of a voice to where they can really create a ripple effect when they decide to speak out. So it's certainly been a year to talk about with sports and politics. And I want to get into that, but I wanted to get to know you a little bit better, if you don't mind. First of all, the basics. Where are you from? Where did you go to high school? I understand you played football. Yeah, a little football. I have kind of a a bit of a diverse upbringing, geographically, maybe not so much culturally. But when I was a kid, I grew up in rural North Carolina, Richmond County to be exact, and uh, I lived down there until I was about like 10 years old. Then from the age of, you know, about 10 on up, I lived in New Haven, Connecticut. And I went to high leadership school. It's a small school that it, it really it actually doesn't even exist anymore. The name got replaced with another school. But it was a really cool little thing because it was the smallest school in the state. But we won a bunch of state championships and we sent a bunch of players to Division One colleges and even we had a few players in the NFL. So, you know, very proud of my little school. And uh, I went to public or private school. Oh, it was a public school. It was a public school. New Haven is uh, is an inner city. Um, and like many inner cities, it has a lot of high schools. And Hyde was one of them. So you get a bunch of splintering of the, the talent. Right. So you might have one school that has a really good quarterback, another school that has a really good lineman. And you might have another school that has a really good running back. And it's rare that you get all those things to come together. Not so much lately. New Haven's done a better job getting its football together, Hill House in particular. But, yeah, it was quite the oddity for us to put together such a a winning program at such a small school. So what what position did you play? I played offensive line. (laughs) I played offensive line and defensive line. When I was in high school, I could get the defensive line, too. Once I got to college, I was strictly an offensive lineman, so I was one of the the big fatties. Before we get to college, how did you do academically in high school? I did okay. I did okay. For me, I can honestly say say I was a person where regrettably once I started being good at football I didn't concentrate as much on school so I was probably a BC student whereas I think that I probably would have been a much better student if I didn't have the confidence boost I was getting from football Mm -hmm. if I was seeking that from being a good student I probably would have been a much better student and were you recruited by colleges yeah small schools though the the high school that I played at was really small, like I mentioned earlier. And my sophomore year, 
was, I believe, the first year of us having a varsity program. So, you know, so the school wasn't really on the map and there weren't like any colleges checking for us. You know, there weren't like any recruiters coming to to check for us. My senior year, we ended up winning all our games. And so we started getting our names in the paper and that type of thing. And so I was in, in the recruiting cycle on very short notice. You know, it was a fun process to be recruited, but I wasn't recruited by like any, you know, big time schools. Did you win a state championship or something like that? I did. I did. I did one of the one of the greatest accomplishments. You know, it's, it's funny. When I was a kid, I used to like laugh at you know those guys who were like, "Oh, I'd, I'd give anything to play one more down of high school football." And I still don't feel that way today. But it was a great time, like just you know playing high school football with you know some guys that I'm still friends with today. Uh, some of my best friends actually are guys who I was on that team with. So yeah, winning a championship in high school was a great life experience. And now you went on to a D1 school, is that right? Yep, Sacred Heart University, Fairfield, Connecticut. The Pioneers, right? Yeah, Sacred Heart Pioneers. And uh, you said you played offensive line all four years at at Sacred Heart? Yep, played offensive line all four years. Uh, Actually, when I was a freshman, they let me play a little bit of defense in like goal line situations. You know, they needed some extra fat people to clog up the line, so they would throw me in there. That That was fun. And how good was that team? My freshman year, we won all our games. We we actually we won the conference, the Northeast Conference, and we won the Sports Network One Double A Mid Major National Championship. So it was yeah, I mean that was a pretty cool two year stretch of not losing any football games. That was that was pretty fun. My my freshman year, I didn't play as much. I mean, I was probably like the sixth lineman because you know on the offensive line is you know it's a unit of five guys at all time. Mm-hmm. Unless someone gets hurt, you don't really substitute anyone in. But from the time I was a sophomore on, I was a starter the whole the whole way. And how'd you do academically in college? I did again. I did okay. I did okay. I was. It's, it's one of those things where you know you could probably go down my transcript and you could see the classes I liked and the classes I didn't. The classes I liked, I was an A B student. The classes I didn't, I was a B C student. So yeah, I mean, again, I, I did okay. It was. It's one of those things where. I think you know, I'm a big personal responsibility person, so I don't I don't fault anyone else for my decision making. But my dad didn't go to college. So, you know, when it came to picking a college, the only advice my dad gave me was go to the places offering you the most money. So it's not like I was getting check ins on, you know, my grades and which classes to pick and, and that type of thing. So, you know, I was kind of winging it. And again, me being kid with questionable decision making. You know, like I said, I I was the classes I liked. I did well in the classes I didn't. I kind of did just enough to skate by. You were on scholarship there? Yeah, well, at the time, Sacred Heart wasn't a, a full scholarship school, but, but I did have a nice little grant and aid package. It, Sacred Heart was a pretty expensive school, too, so, you know, I definitely wouldn't have gone there without it. And what was your major? I was a political science major in undergrad. I think I picked up a minor in sociology. So you graduated? Yeah. Yep, I graduated. I did the extra semester, so four and a half years. Hey, man, I know you put the time into the football, so I don't fault you for that. Yeah, I, I, I not only put the time into football on the field, I put the time into football on the Xbox. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I understand you played a little bit of football, professional, semi-professional. What team were you on? How would you qualify that? Yeah, so I played, I put in the time in the football on the Xbox, and, you know, a a big part of my my life plan, and this is terrible life planning, was playing football. You know, I I just thought I played pretty well. You know, I always graded out pretty high on all my film and everything, and, you know, I was convinced that I was going to have a career playing professional football. So, you know, after I graduated, I went down to North Carolina, and I played for a uh, professional indoor team called the Raleigh Rebels. The team doesn't exist anymore. The league doesn't exist anymore. You know, we were making, oh, God, I think we made 250 bucks a game. And if we won, we got like a $50 bonus. It was like being back in college. And, uh, yeah, it was a fun experience. So, you know, I got to I got to chase the pro dream. And I also, you know, during that time, I got to kind of see – I got to kind of realize that, like, I, I really didn't want to be the guy chasing a football dream my whole life. And I also didn't want to put in the work that it required to keep chasing football. Like, you know, sometimes you got to be honest with yourself. And, and I felt like I had to be able to do more of my life than, uh, you know, bang my head against other people for entertainment. So, so speaking of that, did you ever have any uh, significant injuries from your football experience? 
No, I'm I'm very fortunate in that respect. I got a little bit of tennis elbow from working out, <laughs> but but other than that, no, I, I've never had any significant injuries. I'm not totally convinced that I haven't had a few concussions, but I've never had. But I can tell you what, I've never had enough to keep me off the field, and so yeah. You may have already answered this, but what's a highlight or stat of your entire football career that you're most proud of? Oh man, that's a great question. The the team that we built in high school was amazing. Um, my class was the core of that team from the time we were sophomores all the way through being seniors. Um, my sophomore year we went zero and ten. My junior year I think we went four and six, and then my senior year we went twelve and zero. So you know that really was a great. It was it was just it was it was just a great uh, accomplishment. It's something that you know all of us who were on those teams can always you know take with us the fact that we really built something through our own hard work. So, um, yeah, I mean, that may be one of my one of my top accomplishments. But if I can just kind of veer off of that a little bit, I think in another in another respect, the fact that playing football, you know, kind of created a, a, a gateway for me to, you know, go to college and, you know, really just find, a, a, I guess, a better life. You know, that in itself is a pretty great accomplishment. So it sounds t- to me like the uh, sort of your experience in academic football worked for you was important in your life and achieving your life goals. Is that right? Yeah, I would definitely say so. And, definitely. and now you work at a uh, national sport uh, media company. Is that right? I do. I, you've probably seen the company I work for, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I've been very fortunate to work for some, some very big companies. So one more question. I know you have a beautiful family and a beautiful daughter, but if you were to have a son, would your son play football? Oh, man, that's a great question. I, and I've actually talked with my wife about that a bunch. I've talked with my friends with that a bunch. At this moment in time, I think that if I had a son, I think I would let him play flag football up until high school. Once he got to high school, if he wanted to play padded football, then I'd be fine with that. Maybe middle school. Um, I, I played. I started playing, I think, in uh, eighth grade. So, you know, a lot of times as I played, I would think to myself, man, I would have had so much more refined skills had I played like Pop Warner or something like that. And maybe that's true, but I think also knowing what we know now about head trauma, it can't be good to have more years of banging your head against other people. Just, it just, it it can't, there's nothing positive that can come from that. All right. So that's, uh, that gives us sort of a frame of reference to understand how you, you know, your perspective and looking back, but I wanted to talk about sort of the year in review and uh, I'm focusing now on, football and basketball and starting off with college football and I'd like to hear your perspective on this because I know you have experience in college football but in 2015 you know we saw an attempt at labor organizing within college football and the uh, Missouri team you know standing up against racism on campus and willing to boycott or strike against playing football whereas in 2016 we saw a Minnesota team that was going to boycott a game sort of in brutal solidarity with their teammates who were accused of uh, sexual assault. So what do you think about sort of college football, the political economy of college football, how it's changed going into 2016 and what we can expect going into next year? Well, college football is such a dirty game, Uh, but it's also a great game in the sense that it does provide people a lot of great opportunities. I mean, you know, it's one of those things where if you think about it, honestly, you know that the players are taking a sucker deal and the players know they're taking a sucker deal. And by that, I mean, the players know when they look around these stands that everybody's getting paid, but them. they see the coaches, they see what the coaches are driving. They see the athletic directors. They, they probably see what they're driving. They see the stands full of people. People are making money hand over fist and more so and more so every couple of years, every time these contracts for television get renewed and these bowl games and these apparel contracts, everyone is getting paid, but the kids are supposed to be happy with the opportunity to earn education. There's nothing right about, you know, there's nothing fair about that. And there's, there's, I'm sure there are layers to it, but to me, that's the guts of it. I, you know, players are, are taking a little bit of a sucker deal because they're just hoping to make it to the NFL on the back end. That's the sucker deal of it. Now, when it comes to, to, to political activism, I'm much more 
of a fan of the idea of players standing up for themselves because I believe that if just like we saw in Missouri, if players were to somehow unionize and stand up for themselves and say, hey, we're not taking that field unless we start getting a cut of this money, they would figure out how to get the players a cut of the money. And that's all there is to it because, you know, Alabama has what a 90,000 seat stadium and they're not showing up to see the band. Okay, so if the players were to somehow take control of that, then they could get a cut of the money and and, and it's very much deserved. So I'm a fan of players taking a stand on that. I'm also a fan of players doing what the guys at Missouri did, which is using the influence of being a football player, using the monetary influence of being a football player to affect social change. You know, the now. The Minnesota thing is is much different because I think this is a case of people trying to do the right thing, but in a misguided way, right? So for what we've heard, and I don't know how much details people have heard about this story of the Minnesota football players, but a little Cliff Notes version of it is that there was a young lady who went back to the dorm or the apartment with one of the players and when what whatever transpired, somehow there ended up being a line of football players all waiting to have their turn with her. OK, and she, you know, there's no way that anyone who's not in that situation can say how she should have handled it. OK, if for whatever reason, her logic was just go along with it and it'll be over. Right. Then. You can't tell her that that was the right thing or the wrong thing to feel because she could have really been fearing for her life. You know, again, there's a lot of assuming that you have to make in order to try to put yourself into the heads of the people who were in this situation. But the point is, it was a very this wasn't like a case where a bunch of guys were being wrong. But the players, maybe some of them who didn't fully know all the details, they felt like they were trying to stand up for the guys that were being suspended unfairly. And this is just one of those things where this was the wrong cause for them to take up. It was when it comes to something like that, you don't want to jump up defending your friends because you may think you know a person, but you never know what people will do behind closed doors. Somebody might be your friend, but you don't know. You can't take their word for what they did in in a moment like that. So for me, I felt like it reflected sort of a change in the political situation nationally. You know, you went from the audacity of hope where Kane Coulter thought he could organize, you know, his football team at Northwestern into a union for all the reasons you just spoke about. You know, it went into standing up for that black lives and the black experience at colleges where, they're, you know, they felt marginalized matter, you know, with the Missouri team to this, this idea of that locker room talk about sexual assault should be defended, which is moving from the Obama into the Trump era, unfortunately. So uh, that's why I wonder, what does that mean really for this year that's coming and for the college athletes and the political economy in which they're going to be working, basically, and studying? I, you know, see, I think that's actually very interesting. I never thought about it from that perspective of the players wanting to say, hey, you don't have a right to tell us that we can't talk about, you know, quote unquote guy stuff. The the locker room talk phrase as as you put it. I you know, I, I had never thought about it from that perspective and I hope in my heart of hearts that that's not where they were coming from. But if it was, then it would be a reflection of where we where we are politically and what this country has said are okay values for people in positions of leadership based on our, our vote. Here's the interesting thing, right? A football team in college is usually about a hundred people. And that group of a hundred people is made up of a, of a diverse background of people who come from, you know, all walks of life. So you're not going to have people that all lean one way, you know, conservative or liberal or, so, you know, these are all these are, these are still young men and they still need guidance. But given where we are politically as a country, I do think that's going to lead to some interesting um, 
some interesting situations, you know, with, with these young people deciding what they want to stand up for and how they want to go about it. Because, you know, I just feel I feel like, you know, the aftermath of our political election has made a lot of people feel either apathetic to the political process or just feel like the gloves are off socially. Like, who can tell you that anything you say or do is taboo when they voted for grab them by the you-know-what man? You know? So. so so, what do you think then, looking forward? What's the possibility of, for example, you know, the college football players at the Power 5 schools making all this money getting some kind of wage out of that? Well, uh, an interesting story broke the other day. There is a football league that's going to be starting uh, in the spring that's going to be for high school seniors. Uh, I'm sorry, for kids who have graduated high school but have not been out of school for three years yet, right? So basically, it's people who don't want to go to college. So they're, and, and it's going to pay an average of $50,000 per player. So it, if this league takes off, this is going to be a real alternative for kids to go instead of going to going to college and playing for free. Now, it's going to take, you know, some really big time players to actually commit to playing in this league to really get the tide shifting towards players looking at this as a serious viable option. But if something like this takes off, this is going to change the dynamic 100%. Because if you are a football player, um, if you're coming out of, of high school and you can either make $50,000 a year for the next three years or make nothing a year for the next three years and both ways you have a chance to get drafted to the NFL uh, coming out of it, that's going to force the colleges to step up what they're offering. Hmm. Well, that's interesting. I'll have to look into that. And uh, any other thoughts on sort of the uh, political dynamic of organizing and football moving into the uh, the next year? I think there'll be I think there'll be a lot more conversations, or maybe those conversations. I don't know. See, I, I I'm a believer that you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube, right? The last year really has been ever since even even more than last year. I'll say the last three four years. I would say ever since the Trayvon Martin George Zimmerman national news story, I think that these these blatant examples of, you know, black people being mistreated by the police has just been it's been so so topical and so visible and people are going to continue to talk about it. And we've talked about it so much for these past four years. I don't see that just going away. And these things are obviously going to continue to happen. They're going to continue to be news. And so we, we also saw a bunch of stories of things happening on college campuses. There was a young man from Wisconsin that, you know, he, he spoke out about, you know, seeing the, um, the figures of Obama in the stands with the noose around his neck. And the, the story about the, uh, the frat guys from Oklahoma, you know, singing their song on the bus. And so these things are these incidents aren't going away. And with the type of people that are going to feel empowered with with our new president, you know, I don't know. I just I I think we're going to see a lot more of this stuff, you know, and I think we'll see a lot more public protesting. And once the word gets out that there is an alternative other than, you know, playing football for free, you know, I think you're going to see players being a lot harder to control. And that's an interesting point and actually brings into something else I wanted to talk about, which was professional football. And I think this last year, the most visible figure within political protests of uh, professional football was certainly Colin Kaepernick taking a knee during the national anthem. Uh, But it should be noted, he did other sort of protest acts, you know, wearing a shirt from the 68 Olympics uh, with the iconic image of John Carlos with his fist in the air, as well as, you know, a shirt showing... I believe it was Fidel Castro with Malcolm X when he went to Miami. And a lot of people were very critical of him. My biggest criticism of him is that his team didn't win. But yeah. uh, any yeah. any thought on, uh, you know, what happened this last year in the NFL? And, you know, how, how does that, what's that dynamic like with the other things we were talking about? Well, I was actually watching some of the playoff games today. And, you know, I was noticing that, like, during the national anthems, I wasn't seeing anyone doing any protest or anything like that. And 
you know, it just kind of made me think to myself, you know, it's sad that, you know, people are so in the moment, like they can be hot about something in the moment because, you know, these issues that they're being protested, they're very real. And just like we were just saying, like, they're not going away. They haven't gone away. There haven't been really any any steps or measures put forward to actually try and heal these things. So mm-hmm. why, why would your protest just go away? What Colin Kaepernick did, he sparked national conversation, national debate. And, you know, for that, I think we're all indebted to him because he found a way to make an old conversation new. Uh, he made it feel like a new conversation. Although, you know, those of us who don't live in denial about these things, it's not new to us. You know, we're screaming about this every day. But he found a way to put this front and center on everybody's plate where they couldn't deny it. And again, you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. I think that showing that so many players care about these things and are passionate and for him to take a stand when he's in a position with much to lose, I mean, endorsements, being a starting quarterback of an, of an NFL franchise and being the target of so much ire from people about his protest, you know, he actually did stand to lose a lot. And he not only stood in the face of it, but he didn't flinch. He didn't flinch. And every time he was asked about it, he had intelligent, thoughtful responses to come back with. And when this story first broke, I didn't think it was going to be a big deal. Not only did I not think it was going to be a big deal, but I also, you know, said I'm not looking here to jump on the Colin Kaepernick bandwagon because you can't just champion anyone who does the right thing for once, you know, because you never know what other type of flaws they have and what type of things they may do wrong tomorrow. So you don't want to be like, hey, I'm the biggest Kaepernick fan in the world. Then, you know, tomorrow he pops up, you know, beating his girlfriend or something. Right. So. I wasn't looking to put on my my Colin Colin Kaepernick fan club T-shirt before, but I am now. I mean, listen, you know, like I said, he's put his money where his mouth is, you know, literally. He's, I don't know if you saw, but he had like an extensive sneaker collection that he donated to homeless people. He started a camp for kids that's really just about, you know, getting to know yourself and your ethnicity and creating, creating pride in yourself as a person, which will lead you to having to carrying yourself in a better way and hopefully obviously the ultimate goal is to lead to better lives down the road for people and so i think he's been a true champion for the causes that he's tried to bring light to and i agree with you i feel like uh he put his time and money off the field into things that he was talking about and i think the other thing that sort of validated him is that his teammates believed in him. You know, he may have right. been the only one taking a knee at times, but, you know, he won this team's uh, Len Eshmont Award for Courage. And I think that showed that his teammates respected his actions. And, in fact, you know, some of the other sort of administrative people in the 49ers that were very critical of him have been, you know, have been shown the door. So we'll see where Kaepernick goes in the future. That's why I think the, the biggest sin he had was not winning. Even though he actually had, if you look at his stats, he had a good year, I think. But the right, team right. as a that whole. That team was terrible. That yeah. team was awful. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, you know, it, it's easier It's easier to have the podium, have the mic when you're winning. You know, you're open to yes. criticism when you're losing. Because the way, only reason people come in to see you, the main reason, is to see you win football games. But it was interesting, I also thought, to see how his actions echoed around the NFL. And I think, for example, you know, in Seattle with the Seahawks, you saw, you know, Michael Bennett and his teammates kind of locking arms, you know, were willing to, I think that was obviously inspired by Kaepernick and and given a space to do that. And also wondering, in Minnesota, there was that banner drop at the Minnesota Vikings game against the Dakota Access Pipeline, you know, and I wonder how much people would have thought the NFL was in a forum for protest without Colin Kaepernick making it so. Yeah, no, you know, you're absolutely right. The Minnesota Pipeline Mm -hmm. protest, I mean, I think like that was months removed from Colin Kaepernick kind of starting sparking this whole thing. And and you're right, like, you know, he did kind of shine a light on the NFL being an incredible platform where if you do something, people are going to see it. That was absolutely that that was an awesome thing that I think he absolutely deserves credit for. And had he been the quarterback on the winning team, I think that you would see a lot more people, you know, coming to his support. Which again I think is sad, you know, because people 
it shouldn't matter, right? If he's doing the right thing for the right cause, you know, it shouldn't matter whether he's whether he's on a winning team or a losing team. People should still get behind him. But you know, it is what it is. This is America, and we love a winner. Right? Terrence, you work, in, win big you, you work in sports media. You know how this stuff works. Right. <laughs> and, but I also thought, you know, interesting to look at not only the NFL, but NBA players who I think in the last year or two have really stood up and, you know, LeBron James, for example, among others, at least on the issue of the Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter and issues of police violence have been willing to take a stand and have sort of been allowed at least a space by the NBA, it seems to do that. Would you agree? Yeah, well, I have mixed feelings about the NBA with this. And that's because the NBA has sent mixed messages about this. The NBA has done what I would say is an excellent job of catering to its its black fan base and black players, right? Let's not forget that, the people who are the product on the court, by you know, doing things like, you know, they, they do great things during Black History Month. They, you know, when the Donald Sterling thing came out, they got him out of there. Things like that. But when, the se- when this season was coming about, the NBA made it a point to let their players know that they did not want to see protests. And so they tried to put it in as nice a way as possible, but... The NBA let it be known they did not want to see protests. And that I didn't like. And if you remember the story about the singer, I think her name was Seven Streeter. Uh, she was going to perform at a Philadelphia 76ers game. She had on a T-shirt that said, We Matter, and they canceled her performance. Hmm. And again, that goes to show you where the heart of the people writing the checks is. And so, you know, for me... It's like, okay, you can, you know, you can try to appease people in all these other ways, but if you see that there's something that's a hot button topic, such as players protesting during the anthem, and you're going out of your way to make sure this doesn't happen, you are, you're repressing people trying to fight for something. And so that I, I really didn't like. This is another topic. I wonder how are things going to change? You know, the NBA players had something of a champion in Barack Obama, who they were excited to go to the White House and speak to. And if not openly supportive, was probably inspirational in that. And probably others like Keith Ellison in politics. How is that going to change now that the White House is going to be held by Donald Trump? You know, will they even want to go to the White House if they win the championship? That kind of thing. And how is that going to make? How is that going to affect you know the the environment in which they're playing and, and acting? I think that it's going to. I think it'll be like anything else in this instant attention microwave society that we live in. I think it'll be hot for now, and then I think in the next year or two, people will be right back to living you know business as usual. You know, and what I think Donald Trump being in the in the president's office, a lot of people who are in public positions feeling comfortable repressing these conversations. So I think they'll just be heard less. And I think that, you know, you may get players who don't want to go for maybe the first championship or the first year, but you're starting to see more and more black celebrities coming out talking about, you know, we need unity or, you know, give Trump a chance. And to that, I say, kiss my grit. I'm not, <laughs> I, I mean, like, I'm sorry. I'm just, I'm just, I'm not here for it. Like you can t- talk about now, like, you know, people want unity, but where was the unity when the, when all the garbage and hate was being spewed? Like who was crying for unity then? So yeah, I mean, I think people will, will eventually just fold under what they say are their convictions now, but I would love to see people, you know, really stand strong on if you really don't think that this is a person who deserves to be president or means well for all Americans, then don't go to the White House. I'd like to see them actually stand strong on that. I don't think they will do it, but I'd love to see it. And, you know, I, I thought it was also interesting how the space that the NBA players were able to make for protests, how that was compared to what was going on in the WNBA, probably the, if not the only, the most successful domestic women's sports league. You can tell us a little bit more about this, but uh, there was a lot of uh, teams that were very active and their players, both black and white, standing up in solidarity with the Black Lives Movement. And the WNBA was very swift to try to shut that down, as I understood it. 
Yeah, I mean, the WNBA, you know, these big organizations, they don't want scandal. And let's be honest, like, the, white people are the majority of people in this country, okay? And you don't want to offend masses of white people because if you're trying to make money, then you don't want to turn off the largest segment of the population, right? That's just that's just math. That makes sense. But when it comes to, to the way that the WNBA handled these protests, I applaud them because the players, I think, you know, they went out of their way to make statements that were, you know, positive and inclusive and not really divisive. They were met with a lot of uh, a lot of pushback. But, you know, a lot of that is because there's this idea that if you don't just turn a blind eye to everything that's being done by the police, that you're somehow against police. And as soon as you throw those buzzwords out there, then, you know, you get the the teeth of conservative America that wants to, you know, jump on you and say, oh, you're anti-police. My my uncle is a police officer and he's a good man. And I'm like, yo, well, where was your uncle when that guy was choking that guy to death, right? So, but the WNBA players, part of me felt like this wasn't their fight, but I'm glad they made it their fight. Because, unfortunately, the, a lot of times this this issue gets framed as, Young black men versus the police. Now, we know that in reality, that's not it. But that's the way it gets framed, right? And so when you see, like, in the football, uh, in, the, in the NFL or in the NBA, these are the faces of young black men who are expected to speak up on this and fight this fight. Because they're the ones who are, you know, feeling and being affected by the, by the, by the actions. Like, when these things take place, these are the ones who appear victimized. For me, I just thought it was uh, it was a beautiful thing for these women to put themselves right in the middle of this. You know, there, there were police that were saying they're not going to uh, provide security at their games anymore. And, you know, just, again, all types of, you know, fan pushback and things of that nature. And like I said, the women didn't have to step into it, but they did. And I just I thought that was very brave of them. And I thought. All of the protests that I saw, I thought they were handled very, uh, very nobly. But I thought they were handled well, and they, they were handled in the most non-offensive way possible. And yeah, I mean, like I said, I just I thought they really did a great thing. I think it's it's wonderful when you see the women standing up for the men, you know, because you know if it was a physical fight, right? You know, you don't expect the woman to jump in, but it's just good to see that the woman that the, that the women are willing to you know jump in and do whatever they can. To support the cause. Well, to me, what part of the interesting question, you know, I think the biggest difference between the WNBA and the NBA is not anatomic, right? It's financial, right? The NBA is making a lot of money. Is the WNBA making enough money? You know, are they, how are they doing financially? Are they making enough money to allow the space for those players to, to try to own that? That's a great question. I, I honestly haven't seen the numbers on how they're doing financially. I would think that at this point that the league exists as a good gesture. Because <laughs> um, I, I, when, I, when I see WNBA games, I don't see stands full of people. So, you know, I, I, I don't know what they're making. I mean, maybe they, maybe they have a nice TV contract. Uh, I know the players don't make that much money. So, you know, who knows? Maybe they're operating uh, above the line. I don't know. Um, Is this a league that's going to stand the test of time, do you think? Well, America's funny because, you know, we have so many niche entertainment things, right? Like, I mean, pro wrestling's been around forever, right? Uh, there's the circus. There's there there was there was an indoor football league that I played in. There's like three or four different indoor football leagues around the country, and so you know, for America, if if anything that people are willing to spend a dollar on, there'll be somebody there to sell it. So I don't think that the league is going to go away. I think if I had to guess, I would think that there's that the WNBA is is funded mostly by some sort of NBA funding. You know what I mean? Like the NBA probably funds the WNBA uh, in some way. Because, again, I, I, I don't know where they would get the money from to really operate on a whole. But, um, yeah, I mean, I don't see any reason why the league would just go away. Like the, if it's if it's lasted this long. Right. Like, why not? Anything else I'm missing and thinking about the last year and the year to come? 
the election of our president-elect is, like I said, I think it's going to embolden some groups of people. And I think the pushback on that, you're going to see more of more of an emboldening of some other people, right? So how does this manifest itself? Well, you ever see the movie Higher Learning? Um, I think... I think you know you could see more incidents like this around college campuses and 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 that type of thing. You know, I would love for you know I'd love for Americans to be able to get together and sing Kumbaya. But to be honest with you, like I don't know if if you're a Trump supporter, I don't really know what you can talk to me about like right now. You know what I mean? Like it's just in all honesty, like there's to me there was there was a distinctive line in the sand drawn in America by people who voted for Donald Trump. And I think if you have integrity about who you are as a person, I don't know. I mean, listen, maybe I've heard some, some explanations from some people about why they voted for Trump that I said are reasonable, right? Like, so for example, if you're a rich person and you know, Trump's going to protect your money and that's your reason to vote for Trump. I can't fault you for that. Okay. I can't fault you for that. But most of the people who voted for him aren't in that boat, right? And so, you know, in the year going forward, I think you're going to see a lot of these feelings, you know, spilling over into the way that people interact with each other. Mm-hmm. And the uh, the sports world is not going to be is not going to be separate from that. So here's you know, since you brought it up, my thought on the uh, you know, I work in surgery. There's a lot of people making some money or having some other political reasons to support Trump. And my thought on that is. You know, you don't have to be racist to support Trump. You don't have to agree with sexual assault to support Trump. But you had to agree that those things were not deal breakers. Right. And and that's why I'm really disappointed in America. That being said, he won fewer than half the votes, less than Hillary Clinton. and uh, But he's going to try to take all of the power. So that's why I think there is going to be a... You know, there really should be a conflict coming over power. And, you know, unfortunately, that's the way it's going to have to play out. But I remember the sports question I had. It's not even really political, but you're a Connecticut guy. We were talking about women's basketball. When do you think someone is going to beat UConn? How many, you know, who's it going to be? And is it going to be this, you know, this year? That's a great question, man. That is a great question. I'd be lying if I told you I knew who was out there that could really beat them. But if I could just say, oh, man, they're on this winning streak. But it's like, dude, they graduated so many great players last year, and they're still not losing. So I don't know. I mean, oh, man, they'll probably lose some random game in the middle of the season to Tulsa or something. I, I keep know. thinking it's going to be Maryland, but they never really come close when they uh, go head to head. I, yo, man, I, I like Maryland's coach, man. Brenda Freeze, she is like always turned up every time you see her. She, she'd be like running and stomping and half jumping in heels. And I'm like, yo, <laughs> she could have been like a black church lady. But, <laughs> um, but, you know, uh, but I, I, I'd like to see them get a big win just because. She looks like she she works hard. So, <laughs> and and to uh, and to to sort of conclude some of the other things we were talking about, I think if we're all going to come together and sing a song, it could be we could do better than Kumbaya. So I'm going to think about that and get back to you. And okay. uh, and I'm a, we'll reach out to Ken Coulter and see what he has to say about all this. Cause, oh uh, man, listen, I would love I'd love to know what happened between that first time they voted to agree to unionize, and then the second time they were like. Yeah, no, we're all set. Yeah, you know, uh, I have, you know, it's almost dangerous to say this in America. I have some experience with unions and union organizing, and that's how it works. You know, everyone's like, that sounds like a great idea until, you know, the people who hold the purse strings start threatening you. And then you're like, it's Mm -hmm. not worth it. I, you know, put my head down and get back to work. So uh, there's details there that I'm sure are very interesting, but that is very typical for organizing campaigns. But you know what? With the kids, they already don't make no money. What they going to say? What, like, what, the thing is, on this one, the kids should stand their ground. I'm sorry. Because there's no – what are these universities going to do? What are they going to do? And, and you know what? The, really, the failure of that campaign was not that the team voted against unionization. It was that when they went to the legal authorities, they said, 
one football team is not a bargaining unit. You know, you're going to have to organize who knows that, you know, the whole majority right. of the NCAA football yeah. or something. So that's how that's how they play that on the legal uh, perspective. And then if you're going to try to keep up a campaign without legal support uh, in the spotlight, it's very difficult. Right. So yeah. the, the other question, I, I don't know if you listened to the first episode I like to ask, any, uh, any books or albums that, uh, that you want to bring to our attention and share with us? Well, I, as far as books go, I want to get into being a better reader, but I don't, I really don't have time to sit down and read. I never have time to sit down and read. I have so, a one year old and <laughs> so whatever. I, uh, I have I have a recommendation for you. I'll start. All right. What you got? And I'll try to send it to you if you haven't read it yet. Is the League of Denial? Have you okay. had a chance to read that? There's Mm-mm. also if you're not a good uh, if you're not you know a reader, there's a, a documentary version of this that's available for free online. Frontline, the PBS. Uh, oh man, I'll be all for that. And it's basically about how concussions in football and the discovery of chronic traumatic encephalopathy. How that mm-hmm. happened, you know, basically in a public coroner's office in Pittsburgh and the battle to make that a uh, an issue to affect how, you know, the football players' lives really was. And it's really is fascinating. That like, is, that, is, that, is that what the movie Concussion is based off of? Concussion, it's, yes, yeah, sort of. There's another book called Concussion. This one I found was sort of the more documentary style book. Um, so this similar narrative. Uh, but this book I really enjoyed. And in fact, it's the first, like, lay book that I've ever read, they made me mm-hmm. go to PubMed and start searching articles that were referenced in the book. I, you know, wow. I was I was reading That's... the first, you know, the the, the publication of of uh, medical journal articles on chronic mm-hmm. traumatic encephalopathy because as mm-hmm. I read through the book, so I really enjoyed that for all the sports fans and trauma surgeons out there uh, alike. I think you'll enjoy it. If I had to, I do have an album that has been on heavy rotation and. This might be a little out of what you might expect to hear from me, but I got to tell you that Bruno Mars 24K Magic, insane. This guy went and made a 90s R&B album. It's amazing. It is amazing. And I never was a Bruno Mars fan, but I just was looking for something to listen to one day. And I was like, let me give this a shot. And this album is incredible, dude. It sounds like he got Bobby Brown and Johnny Gill and and the the whole new edition together and wow. redid an album in like 1994. The album is 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 crazy. So yeah, that's, it's worth the listen for sure. Well, it's not exactly Killer Mike, but I'll be sure to check it out. No, it's definitely not Killer Mike. It's not conscious. It's not conscious. It's not woke. <laughs> All right, my friend. Well, I had a lot of fun. Thanks for joining us. Uh, thank you so much for having me Uh, you know everybody who's out there listening thank you guys for listening and yeah hopefully we can do it again yes All right, my friend take care By the end of this week, Donald Trump will become the most unpopular president ever to begin his term. While the inauguration is all but a short thing, numerous Democratic lawmakers are moving to boycott the ceremonies. Meanwhile, Trump's nominations for different posts in government and the cabinet are facing increasing difficulties. While Trump himself was able to settle his fraud lawsuit before taking office, his nominee for national security, Monica Crowley, has had to withdraw her name from the process because of evidence of massive plagiarism throughout her career. Trump's pick for the Health and Human Services, Price, has been found to have undertaken numerous insider trading deals in which he capitalized on his position as a Georgia congressman to benefit companies that he had just invested in. Trump's choice for Labor Secretary, Puzder, has faced increasing scrutiny into his past which has uncovered evidence of domestic abuse. To the point, in fact, that his wife at the time appears to have been on the Oprah TV show Incognito to discuss her husband's abuse. Please, if you find that video, let me know. While Secretary of Defense 
candidate Mattis may sail through the process, he still needs a waiver of the traditional rules barring military leadership within the State Department, which he has not gotten from the House yet. And lastly, the ExxonMobil CEO Tillerson has faced significant opposition from within the Republican Party, including Senator Ryan. However, this is not a time for self-satisfied smugness with the difficulties of the disorganized Trump administration. It's a reminder that they are vulnerable and that this is a time for hard work, organization, and a clear sense of purpose to counter everything wrong with the new administration. Thanks for joining us. That was a lot of fun. And I also want to thank Terrence Williams for taking the time to join us today. Uh, And I also want to say a special thank you to Dave Zirin on the Edge of Sports podcast. I borrowed the term brutal solidarity to describe the Minnesota football case uh, from him, which he credits uh, Martin Luther King in his original description of violence in the Vietnam War. In any case, our musical selections for the day uh, started off with It's Like That by Son of None. Again, that video has just come out, and I encourage you to look it up. I'll have a link to that on my Twitter account, at SlyFitz, S-L-Y-F-I-T-Z. Next, we have Bruno Mars, Too Good to Say Goodbye. And I'm going to close you out with a clip of Killer Mike from Run the Jewels from the song To the Shareholders. So thanks for joining us, and I hope to see you again next time. And the devil still gon' win It could all be over tomorrow Kill our masters and start again But we know we all afraid So we just simply cry and march again At the damn convenient My heart broke apart when I seen the march mamas in As I rap this verse right now Got tears flowing down my chocolate tin Told the truth and I been punished for It must be a masochist cause I done it again Ooh, Mike said uterus They acting like Mike said you a bitch To every writer wrote and misquoted it Mike said you a bitch, you a bitch, you a bitch had a nigga for the black rider started that sewer shit I maneuver through manure like a slumdog millionaire LP told me fuck them devils Mike, we gon' be millionaires I respond with a heavy ear Big bruh says fuck that, tough enough Stay ready, right, raw rap shit, rugged rough The devil don't sleep us either L spits by, I spit ether We the gladiators that oppose all season Coming soon on a new world tour Probably play the score for the world war At the apocalypse, play the encore Turn around, see L and I smile Hell coming and we got about a mile Until it's over, I remain high